Hi, and welcome to Order from Ashes, Century International's International Affairs podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and today I'm talking to our fellow Sajad Jayad about the $2.5 billion heist of the century uh, that occurred under the radar last month in Baghdad. Uh, he's going to tell us about this crazy caper and uh, what happened, what it means, and maybe what we can do about corruption. Uh, Sajad, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I'm not sure all of our listeners are going to know this in- incredible story. Can you just start off with the whodunit? What happened uh, and and what how was $2.5 billion stolen by whom from where? Basically, the uh, finance ministry in Iraq uh, has several bank accounts in which they hold guarantees uh, from companies that have contracts with um, any of the government agencies that are, for example, uh, uh, to to, um, guarantee that they won't leave, finish their contracts and leave without paying their taxes, for example, or leave part of their contracts unfinished. So it's a way to sort of um, guarantee that whatever contract is given is seen through so uh, wait, financially. Is this a normal thing that businesses do with, with governments around the world? Because already this seemed kind of strange to me. It, I mean, guarantees happen in all sorts of contracts when you're involving private and public sort of um, agreements. In Iraq, this is fairly standard practice, and it does happen across um, other countries as well. But what happened with this is, is it's happened over a year where this money had been accumulating for several years. And people who you know were aware of this knew that there was you know um, essentially billions of dollars sitting in an account, which was not claimed by those original depositors. So those companies either did not were not able to get their money out when they finished because of bureaucracy or corruption, whatever it is, or because um, the, the, the money needed to stay with the government because the uh, contracts were still not seen out. So you had a group of um, bureaucrats within the ministry and people in parliament, people in the prime minister's office, uh, who saw that this money was sitting in the account essentially and said, hey, what if we try to claim this money from the account as if we were the original depositors? So what happened was they concocted this scheme where they came up with these five companies, five private companies, and they forged paperwork to show that they had the power of attorney essentially from the original depositors, these companies who were mainly in oil and gas, and saying that, hey, can we have our money back? And Essentially, they just worked through the chain in the ministry, got the approvals very quickly, went to the banks, and within a period of about 10 months, managed to withdraw this crazy amount of money in cash, cashing checks the same day as they were written out, essentially. And, you know, essentially, they drained the account over a year, and it was only until there was nothing left a couple of months ago at the end of the uh, former prime minister's term that the whole scheme was uncovered. That is wild. Um, and, and I just want to, I want to, replay some of these details so that I understand them better. And also because they just beggar the mind so much. So the money ultimately belongs to oil and gas companies, right? And so in theory, at some point, these companies are expecting to get either get this money back or use it uh, to pay taxes or, you know, for some other legitimate business purpose, right? Yeah. And these five companies that were set up, these are just, am I understanding correctly? These are fake fake companies set up for the express purpose of pretending that they represent the actual 
oil and gas companies that this money belongs to. And somehow with, I guess, complicity of, of a whole bunch of, of people, they go and they say like, Hey, I want my, my hundred million dollars of my billion dollars back. And someone, what happens? Someone writes them a check and then they go and cash it. Like how does one, how does one withdraw $2.5 billion from a government bank account? Like physically, how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, so you got the gist of it exactly. Um, basically, this you know requires approvals right at the top from the finance minister. Um, the finance minister was not very you know keen to uh, allow the scheme to happen, and so he ordered that everything has to go through him. But essentially, they found a way to sort of bypass the minister. It involves serious senior people at the ministry, senior people at the bank, but also all the other agencies who are supposed to be you know, monitoring this kind of stuff, like the central bank. How do they allow such amounts of cash to be withdrawn at one branch of a bank, for example? How much does so many, how much cash appears in that place on sort of almost a daily basis that they're able to withdraw? What about the integrity commission? What about all the other bodies that we have that are supposed to be uh, monitoring, you know, um, financial mispractice? Where is the money being withdrawn from? Is it like a, a lo- like a local branch of a commercial bank? Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's a state-owned bank, but yes, yeah, exactly. So it's like the equivalent of, you know, walking to the corner office of, you know, Barclays or or Chase or, you know, some bank that normal people use and saying, hi, uh, I'd like $100 million in cash, please. Here's my check from the government. Essentially, yes, exactly. <laughs> How big physically are these are these loads of cash that are being withdrawn? So you would need a, an armored truck to, to you know, just one of these checks, you would need an armored <laughs> truck to um, to get it through, or several vehicles. So one of the checks was for 90 billion Iraqi dinars, just one of these checks that they withdrew, which is around $60 million. So you can imagine $60 million, you need a bag for $1 million. So you can imagine 60 large bags, even, even, a, even a truck would be filled to the brim, so you might need sort of a few vehicles. And that's what was happening. And this is just one check, by the way. And wh- where did the where did the money go? Where does one put or launder or hide such vast quantities of, of, of stolen cash? So, according to the reports that have uh, been, you know, sort of released, uh, some of it went into properties in, in Baghdad, and that actually rings true because property prices in the last sort of 12, 15 months have really shot through the roof. Very, very expensive. You know, like double the price of what they were two years ago. So part of that is attributed to the fact that these guys had a lot of cash and they wanted to sort of launder the money. So they bought, bought prime real estate in, in the middle of Baghdad. So that's you know part of the, where the money went. The second is that they were able to get some of the money out of the country, not huge amounts, but they were able to move um, potentially a few hundred million dollars outside the country into nearby countries and further away. The third is they used you know, um, assets. So for example, they bought vehicles, uh, they bought gold, things that they could exchange for cash later down the line. And part of it is still in cash, still moving around, presumably not being kept in one location because they just couldn't launder enough of it. Right. There's, I mean, there's a great deal of money laundering in the region. Um, and, and, you know, we're talking about huge sums generated by, uh, you know, Iran's illicit oil economy and, and sanctions busting and many, 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 countries are involved. I mean, historically, Lebanon's been a big player in the money laundering business. And now I think that the the Emirates, uh, Turkey, to a lesser extent, I mean, there's lots and lots of, of pathways. Uh, but so this is, um, I mean, this is staggering. And, um, and as we as we drill down, um, 
so who who is implicated? I mean, what what institutions, what entities uh, are implicated in this um, in this particular theft? Well, it's a whole bunch of them. Part of, part of this is um, an MP in Parliament, who then later on becomes an advisor to the Prime Minister. He starts off sort of the chain of events. He asks for some of the the checks before uh, the the checks on the checks um, to be sort of eased because they were delaying payments for legitimate withdrawals, and the Prime Minister's office backs that, and then the Finance Minister agrees, and then the um, the, the, the general commission of taxes to which this bank account belongs then you know also complies so over a year you've got the involvement of the prime minister's office the involvement of the finance ministry and senior, senior officials all the way up to the top to the minister himself um you've got the the, the rafidin bank which is the bank in which the, the money was drawn these are sort of the directly involved but then also the people that kept quiet so the central bank the Integrity Commission, the Federal Board of Supreme Audit, for example, and you know even security agencies who must have noticed that these vast amounts of cash were moving around, you know, passing through checkpoints in Baghdad and so on. So to me, it seems like a whole array of of players are implicated, and not just one play, player, not just one side. And their political connections have to be a variety as well, because you know the central bank is influenced by a couple of parties. But then they, those are different from those in the finance ministry. Those are different from those in the prime minister's office. So, you know, when you look at the political players as well behind potentially this scheme, there's a whole variety of them and they fall on different sides of the political spectrum. So this seems to me a key point. I mean, the, because we're going to we're going to get into this a little bit later in this conversation about the uh, political back and forth and the accusations of double standards and, and whatnot. Uh, th- it seems like there's a lot of evidence that uh you know, if not every faction is involved, factions from every end of the political spectrum are involved. So in other words, it's not just allies of the former prime minister, Mustafa Kadhimi, or just one, you know, one group of, of political allies. This seems to be like a, you know, a, a, a pinata for everyone situation where uh, uh, groups that are at loggerheads in political power struggles seem to be incredibly collaborative and and uh, efficient at finding ways to work together, uh, despite enmities in other in other spheres. Uh, when it comes to figuring out how to siphon off uh, uh, public money or or someone else's money uh, for their for their private gain, is that is that right? Exactly, and and this case is symptomatic of what I call the uh, systemic corruption in Iraq. The fact that. All the players are involved from across the political spectrum. They may disagree in front of the public politically, but behind closed doors, they have a power sharing arrangement. And part of that includes the ability to extract money and resources from the state. And so they, you know, act as a cartel to protect their interests. And that's why I think this this sort of case, egregious as it is, may be only sort of a small part of what's been going on these you know, last 10, 15, 20 years in Iraq. All these different players work together to make, I would like to say a quick buck, but it's more than just a quick buck. And unfortunately, the system is able to perpetuate and protect itself because it's infiltrated the judiciary, the um, accountability mechanisms that we have here are compromised by these groups. They have weapons, they have MPs and ministers, and therefore makes it very difficult to try to you know, trace the root cause to any one group or player or side. Right. I mean, this, you know, this case raises the, the, the sort of, I mean, it's 
the depressing prospect, but also the revealing fact that here, when there, when there's a prime minister in place who has ostensibly and publicly embraced anti-corruption as a major uh, plank of his of his of his rule, um, who is. Uh, seeking and taking support from governments that that underwrite anti-corruption initiatives. So, you know, this is maybe it's just marketing, but nonetheless, it's something that distinguishes him from some of his predecessors that nonetheless, this guy with international support for anti-corruption, with a finance minister who is, at least in the eyes of uh, Western governments, you know, the, the best they could possibly hope for in terms of accountability and professionalism and transparency in these circumstances, nonetheless, this kind of corruption seems to take place. To me, that that says immediately two things. One, that, uh, okay, even, even the supposed reformers uh, are susceptible to rottenness. And two, this is clearly not a, a personality problem. If every single type and stripe uh, and flavor of prime minister seems to preside over the same kind of, of, of crookery, uh, this must be a systemic issue and not that we somehow keep ending up with really bad apples in the, in the prime minister's office in, in Iraq. Yeah, I, I completely agree that both of those assumptions are correct. And unfortunately, you can trace some of the roots of this back to 2003. It's just the nature of the system that was set up to govern the country um, with, you know, essentially most Iraqi exiles would come back in, you know, s- disparate groups, each with their own power bases. And once they, you know, they were able to control the the civil service, they were able to divide up, you know, uh, ministries and they agreed what they call them, Hasa, so the system that allocates based according to ethno-sectarian sort of um, numbers in parliament and so on, allocates ministries, resources, positions in the judiciary, in the military, all the way, you know, to the top. Um, this, I think, is is you know going back. We're going back twenty years of history, but this is still playing out today. So, I, I absolutely agree. It is a systemic issue. It is not about one person or one side or one group. And unfortunately, I think you know even the reformers, as you say, even if people come in with the best intentions, they could get they will get caught up in this. They cannot defy the system on their own. So. Unless we have sort of major upheaval and change, unfortunately, any sort of reform drive is bound to be captured, defeated, uh, misdirected by you know the system because it's able to protect itself. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I'm talking with Sajad Jihad, Century International's fellow in Baghdad, about the heist of the century and the what it teaches us about the systemic nature of corruption in Iraq. Uh, after the break, we'll talk about... Uh, Sajad's ideas about what can be done about this. Uh, We'll be right back. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. Welcome back. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I'm talking to Sajad Jihad, Century International's Baghdad Fellow, and we're talking about the heist of the century and what it reveals about systemic corruption in Iraq. Sajad, right before the break, you were uh, you were sort of a talking about the origins of this uh, consociational system in, in Iraq that dates back to the U.S. occupation in 2003, where 
basically every group on a sort of identity basis was given pieces of uh, power and political appointments. Uh, and what my first question is, how do so I I understand all, many of the problems with this type of power sharing system, right? Where you try to diffuse spoilers or, or, or violent challengers by giving everybody a share of the, the, the resources of state, the spoils of state, um, you know, military pieces of military power, intelligence, uh, jobs to distribute to followers and so on. How do we get from, from that uh, kind of arrangement to one where uh, all these factions and players are actually rampantly stealing from the system so i mean we're digging into history but uh, essentially you know you um you have this governing council that the the u.s administration in iraq set up where you know they figured out 25 26 seats council um allocated on an ethno-sectarian basis you know some for the kurds some for the Sunnis, some for the shias and this was the basis of the post-2003 system that it wasn't based on an election. It wasn't based on representation, true representation in, in the society. It was based on these are the key players because they have weapons or they have membership on the ground or they're friendly with us or these are people that are, you know, not, they weren't pro-regime. They were anti-Saddam's regime. So these are the ones that we can work with. And, you know, they were able to get their people into the civil service that was formed after 2003. Remember, things like the army were disbanded, so we had to create a new Iraqi army. So you can imagine you're creating institutions, you're creating bodies, you're hiring people. And as this governing council, which was operating under the control of the CPA, the um, coalition administration at the time, uh, led by Paul Bremer, that eventually then morphed into the transitional Iraqi government, and then once we actually had elections, you know, it was the same players who were still powerful because they were powerful right from the beginning. And over time, they, you know, obviously took control of the, the system. Some of the players became weaker. Some of the players became stronger. We've had very few entrants into the system, I would say. You know, not, there's not that many new players that have come in the last 20 years. But it's been an evolution of, of some of that system. But what you have is something that's resilient. You have parties who some of them control territory a lot of them have their own weapons and media channels so, and so the, the 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 missing the missing piece here in the story you're telling i mean that, that like i i i get that that all makes sense to me when i mean was it from the beginning normal to steal massive quantities of money from public the from the public treasury uh, as part of the system. I mean, the th the system you just described explains why there's no accountability, right? So uh, this is why you can get away with it. Um, was it from day one uh, a free for all in terms of of steal what you can? I mean, corruption is was a problem in Iraq pre 2003, but just on a smaller scale. And there was a limited number of people who could engage in the corruption. It was people tied to Saddam. And, oh, and we democratized corruption. That's awesome. So post-2003, <laughs> basically, that's part of the problem is it became a bit of a free-for-all, more players involved. The numbers just became crazy. You know, we're talking billions of dollars, just even in, the, in those first two years, the 2003-2004 period. And so more and more people got used to the fact that this is this system is available. And if you have the right tools, if you have the right access, you can take advantage. And obviously, as the U.S. then departed Iraq and then the system continued to evolve and the sums, you know, our, our budget is, is, is 10 times what it was pre-2003, right? So we have, you know, 10 more times the, the wealth, at least on paper, than we had then. So we sell $10 billion worth of oil per month at the moment. 
And you can imagine, you know, if some of that is, is bound to corruption, then you're talking billions of dollars per month, uh, every month and continuing almost in perpetuity. So how much do you estimate has been lost to corruption in, in Iraq? Um, so, so, you know, some, some of the people who have commented about this, including our former president, um, including a committee in parliament, they say so roughly up to $300 billion. That, that to me seems like a sort of high amount. But um, I would estimate over the 20 year period since 2003. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But I I would say maybe that figure is a a little bit high, but I would not be surprised if it was anything between, say, 50 to 120, 130 billion dollars. I think that's an estimate. So what percentage roughly of of Iraq's national wealth uh, disappears into corruption every year? Um, again, I think the estimates are so difficult to 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 come up with, but um, you could say that corruption, some of it is so obvious like this, it's just money just being stolen from an account. And that might not be in the high percentage numbers. It might be lower, so the 10 20%, that kind of scheme. But then you also have corruption through kickbacks, corruption through inefficiency. For example, you hear about these contracts in the health healthcare system. For, for example, hospital beds. And the beds that are delivered are less than 1% of the actual cost of the contracts. So, you know, they just keep up with some cheap merchandise. And, uh, you know, so that's all corruption as well. And in that case, in that particular contract, that's 99% corruption. So the numbers differ, but I would say easily per year, anywhere between 20%, 25% of our revenues, our public wealth is, is lost to corruption and perhaps more to inefficiency as well. I mean, this this story that you tell of of like a colossal bank robbery um, to me is is galvanizing because uh, it it shows how easily uh, how easily powerful players can get away with things that are really really brazen um, and which have entirely deleterious impact for Iraq, right? So you you know in other other forms of corruption, you can argue that you know there. are I mean, I, I wouldn't argue this, but you can argue that they're they're the necessary cost of doing business, that they're part of a you know dynamic capital creation. You know, there are more medical contracts or more medical supplies than in the past, and even if some of them are are of crappy quality or money's being stolen along the way or you know jobs are being handed out, in the end, a lot of this corruption is is uh, is ending up being in the hands of Iraqi consumers who can spend it. Uh, but you know really the big ticket corruption is completely extractive. It's just taking away resources um, and making it impossible. uh, You know, like I would assume this sort of theft is part of the explanation for why we, you know, over decades now see zero movement in building new power plants or in setting up natural gas capture uh, because major companies, oil field services and oil companies that would need to invest money to do this, see that whatever, whatever they do in this country risks being uh, not only thwarted by bureaucracy and extortion and bribes and kickbacks, but even uh, uh, whatever deposits are put in are going to be stolen. So it just is a, it's a losing bet to, to try and do anything. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that it's very dangerous to be defeatist and to accept that this is what's going to happen. There's nothing we can do about it. I mean, public pressure is there and it is increasing. People are outraged by this uh, heist of the century. People are talking about it. 
Uh, they're not surprised, unfortunately. You know, they're like, okay, this happened. Yeah, it was bound, it was bound to happen. There, there must, must be other stories like this. And that's the attitude, unfortunately. But still, people want to see action. And this, the current prime minister has tried to show that he's, you know, going to be different from his predecessors and going to do something about corruption. But I think public anger is is not going to go away. It, not just about this case, but generally, the, the amount of money that this country has, the wealth that we have, you cannot see it on the ground. The state of services, what's provided to the average citizen, even things like um, frontline services, even basics that you have elsewhere in the region in countries that have less than 10% of our wealth that are much better off than us. I think that anger um, for especially our younger population is not going to subside. In fact, it's going to increase. And I think that's probably the key to putting pressure on the political system to change so that we have less corruption. I'm not saying corruption is going to go away, but Certainly these kinds of cases where, you know, billions of dollars are just taken out of bank account, we hope in the future due to pressure that these kind of things don't happen anymore. So you see a path, uh, you know, through the the popular rage uh, galvanized, mobilized by this kind of, you know, this kind of horror story uh, that we're talking about. You see a path from that anger to some kind of meaningful uh, change, reform, curtailing of the of the rampant culture of, of, of graft and corruption uh, inside the state. Yeah, I mean, that's it's one possible route. I'm not saying this is what is going to happen. I'm saying that that is something there and definitely something that um, people inside the country, um, people who really believe in reform, NGOs, civil society activists, but also the international community, th- this kind of thinking, I think, is what they have to look at. It's practical and realistic. How do we encourage the public to put pressure on politicians to change? I think it's um, fairly acceptable to you know, think along those lines. But also beyond that, you know, a lot of our wealth has gone abroad. How come we don't get that money back? How come it's allowed to, you know, to, to be taken abroad? You know, the, the billions of dollars that were lost in, in Lebanon, for example, um, the Lebanese bank said it was Iraqi depositors. Well, who are they? <laughs> I mean, how, how come they ended up with these billions of dollars? You know, why is that not disclosed? So that, so that, by the way, is a uh, as a side note, is a wealth transfer where this rich country Iraq has its wealth stolen by corrupt leaders who then <laughs> bank it in these corrupt Lebanese banks who then fleece the the depositors. And so who who won that money? Lebanese bankers were the beneficiaries of Iraq's wealth. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, exactly. so, so Sajad, you have a, a, a sort of, um, uh, you know, I think uh, encouraging take on, on, on this. So what is, so, so, you know, you diagnose this as a systemic problem with, with systemic solutions. What is the, the sort of slow, long game towards systemic, uh, system, systematically addressing this systemic corruption problem in Iraq? I think it starts right at the political level. We need to have reformists in power. We need to have a new generation of politicians who will behave differently from those that came before them. So part of that is ground at the ground level, grassroots level, encouraging people to you know enter politics, get into parliament, organize themselves, be an effective opposition, and then start to sort of tackle some of these cases, use their powers as MPs, as people in the in the system to start um, you know bringing light into a dark room to say, hey, what's going on with this? What's going on with that? And I think it's it's possible. We've had some success in this past election with um, some independent MPs coming into parliament and sort of giving people hope that, hey, we can actually play 
the same game as the others and and actually infiltrate infiltrate the system in a way or start to take it back from them. So I think that is a key aspect of this is is we have to not give up the political game. We have to play them and we have to be involved at that level. But beyond that, I think we need to sort of look at the tools that are used elsewhere in other countries to deal with corruption. You know, the things around accountability and pushing for transparency, the technical side of things, the legislative side of things, but also, you know, the work of NGOs, civil society, think tanks, using international organizations and bodies to try to work on anti-corruption, not just relying on the system to reform itself, but putting pressure on it to force it in a way to change. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like one of the positive for, I mean, like there's money to be made, right? Uh, in, in this wealthy uh, wealthy country with not just a, a, a big oil supply, but also a big market of consumers that, that have money to spend. So one would, you know, I, I would think there's a positive inducement side of this where, you know, if you can address some of these systematic issues, there are companies and individuals who are going to want to come in and invest and build things. Um, not, not as a, as a charity, uh, uh, initiative, but as a, as a sound, uh, investment. Um, so, you know, I see that as, as part of the reason to, 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 to be optimistic. Um, I want to ask you one one other thing before we close. There, there's been a little bit of a of a uh, debate over whether there's like an unfair double standard being applied to Kavimi uh, over this heist. That you know, I've heard uh, uh, some analysts and uh, some people who I, I don't know. I don't. I think are are somewhat somehow apologists uh, for the for the recent. Uh, administration, but anyway, the the argument they make is uh, this kind of theft has been happening all the time under every administration. Why uh, are we singling out poor Mustafa Kadhimi and this mere two point five billion dollar theft uh, as if it's a big deal? Um, you know, can you can you shed some clarity on that uh, on that debate? So actually, two things. First, I mean that kind of uh, agrees with my argument. The fact that it, they're saying it happens under previous governments and prime ministers, that then that makes my point that it's a systemic, you know, that therefore you cannot rely on one in, one individual or one person to to be a reformer because it's a systemic problem. So that, that you know, agrees with my uh, argument. But also the fact that in this particular case, uh, there is evidence and there are a lot of threads that show a direct connection to the prime minister being involved. It's his staff, it's his advisor, it's people connected to him, people that he's appointed under his watch, that were involved in the heist. And I think that's that's what makes this case sort of very disappointing because, as you mentioned, the former Prime Minister Academy was promoted as a reformist. But unfortunately, if he's sort of got a personal involvement in the case, that makes you know all the more disappointing the fact that um, you know somebody that we hoped would be better performer than his predecessors ends up maybe being directly involved in a heist like this which even his predecessors might not have been directly involved in in the same way. I think that's probably one of the reasons why it's so disappointing. But we're not trying to whitewash anybody here. We, all governments should be held accountable. All, pre, all his predecessors should be held accountable. This current government should be held accountable because we want to see what they're going to do about this. They may not end up getting involved in a heist like this, but what are they going to do about this heist? They have the evidence. They know who is involved. They know which political players are behind it. What are they going to do about it? So I think you know it needs to be applied. The standards of what we expect needs to be applied fairly. Yes, Kalami is just you know one player in what's been going on this last twenty years, but also because we expected more of him, which is I think part of the disappointment. 
You can read the sordid and shocking account of this ice of the century, along with uh, Sajad's thoughts on on what we can actually do uh, to address the systemic rot that it exposes uh, at the Century Foundation's website. Uh, his uh, his piece is called "Corruption Is Strangling Iraq." It's at tcf.org, the Century Foundation. Uh, you're listening to Order from Ashes, that's Century International's podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and I've been speaking with Sajad Jihad from Baghdad, uh, Iraq. Uh, Sajad, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.